So good to be together. River West Church on this amazing Labor Day weekend. Why don't you pull out your Bible as you're getting settled there and open to the book of Colossians. If you're a guest or a visitor and you don't have a Bible or you forgot your Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and we'll, um, we'll get you a Bible. We'd love for you to have a Bible in your hands. And uh, let me give you the lay of the land here. Today is uh, the last sermon that we're going to preach in our summer series we've been doing called Seeking God, our series on the spiritual disciplines or what we've called practices of the Christian faith. And that means that next week when you come back, we'll be doing something different. Next Sunday is a standalone Sunday. It's our first Connect Sunday where you can learn about our church, how to get involved. That will be a great Sunday to invite a friend or a neighbor or someone. And then the following Sunday, which is September 15th, we're going to go back and we're going to relaunch into our Luke series we've been doing. We're going to re-Luke, okay? And it's going to be amazing. And that too would be a great season, a great time in our church to invite people in your life that, that need to hear something about Jesus. We'll be focusing on Christ, how compelling Christ is, how perfect he is. And so September 15th, come back for that. But today, we're going to do one final spiritual practice. Might be one you're uh, not thinking of typically as a habit or a spiritual practice of the Christian faith, but I assure you that it is. And what I'm hoping will happen for you today is you will not think of this as the last sermon in this series, but you'll actually think of this as the beginning of, of an actually a life of practicing some of these things we've been talking about. We've talked about some amazing habits, amazing practices of the Christian faith and our encouragement. And I've heard from many of you that you've been trying these and they've been impactful for you. And so hopefully this for you is a new beginning where you recognize the power of forming spiritual habits in your life. And what I thought of this week, I thought of an illustration that I thought would encourage you. Uh, this was an illustration that came to me this week on Wednesday morning when I was sitting in the passenger seat of our stick shift car and my 16-year-old daughter was at the wheel, all right? This, um, the, we had a friend a while back who said, hey, little word of wisdom, Teach your kids how to drive a stick shift car. Give them a stick shift car. And there are reasons for this. One of them was that that's a skill they'll have for the rest of their lives. But this friend said, here's the thing about that. You greatly reduce the chances that anyone else will drive away in that car because no one knows how to drive a stick. And I was like, this is so wise. Right up until the point when I was teaching my 16-year-old daughter how to drive a stick shift, okay? And I had this phrase going through my head. Practice makes perfect, all right? It was more of a prayer. It was more of a cry for mercy than anything else as my was lurching forward. And we were there in the middle of an intersection and we're lurching and I'm thinking, please, Lord, practice makes perfect, right? And Bridget is crying and she's going, I hate this car, dad. I hate this car. But here's the thing. Here's what happened in that moment. I said to Bridget, Bridget, what you don't realize is that right now, you have to think about every single thing you're doing. Like every decision you make requires all of your concentration, you know? Isn't that true? When you're first learning to do something new, it takes all of your focus. But here's the thing, Bridget. I said, six months from now, all of this will be pure habit. You won't even think anymore 
about where first is to second. It'll just happen habitually. Isn't that amazing? Let me tell you something. That is the power of forming habits. Sometimes it takes a little work to get there. Yes. But once you've formed that habit, once you've put in a little bit of effort and you've exerted some energy, it becomes a practice that's familiar to you. And then you can move to a place where there are certain things that you can begin to do in your life and you don't even think about it anymore. Like, how to drive a car. How many of you think today about how to drive a car? It just happens habitually. And what we've been doing in this series is we've been saying, okay, that applies to these practices of the Christian life. There are things that you could begin to practice that would become so ingrained in you that new habits will form. You say, I don't really understand the Bible. And so we've said, well, do you read the Bible daily? Just pick up your Bible, read for five minutes. Even if you don't understand what you've read, read it and then pray and then pick it up again the next day and read. And you know what will happen? This beautiful habit will form in your life and you'll grow in wisdom and understanding of God's word. You say, I don't know how to break through this this thing that I'm struggling with. Maybe it's anger or a short patience or, or some other thing that you struggle with. Well, we talked about meditation taking God's word, taking a verse that applies to something you're really wrestling with and beginning to chew on it and fill your heart and your mind with that. A simple practice that begins to form habits where God's power gets unleashed in you and suddenly you find you're you're experiencing victory in these things. Amazing, right? The power of habit. Now here's the thing you need to realize. This truth applies, if it applies to anything, let me tell you something, it applies to the activity of evangelism. Evangelism. Think about this. Evangelism is kind of like learning how to drive a car. No one sits down to a stick shift and just immediately knows what to do. You have to practice. And so it is with talking with someone about Jesus sharing the gospel with someone, that is a big moment, a big activity. Why would you think that you could just walk in and do it without ever taking time to form some practices and some habits in your Christian life? And so we're going to talk about that this morning. So I titled the sermon today, How to Practice Evangelism. Interesting title. And to answer that question, we're going to go to Paul's letter to the Colossians. Will you turn there with me? Colossians chapter 4. I love this paragraph we're going to study today. It's super rich. It's beautiful. Paul gets to the end of his letter to the Colossians, and he takes some time to speak specifically to them about evangelism. Will you look at it with me as I read it? Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Here's what Paul said. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, 
so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What an amazing... I could preach, and I probably should be preaching multiple sermons on this, but that passage is so powerful. The whole paragraph is about evangelism, okay? This is clear. But what you might not have noticed is that the activities that Paul describes, and if you sort of just peruse over the paragraph with your own eyes, one of the things you'll notice is that what Paul's talking about here are activities that are habitual in your life. They're things that you're practicing regularly. So when Paul talks about prayer, he doesn't describe prayer as this one-off thing. He says, no, no, pray steadfastly that God would open a door for the word, right? He's envisioning a Christian who's regularly praying for this kind of evangelistic impact. When Paul talks about the life of a Christian, he says, walk in wisdom. He's thinking of the habitual way that you live your life, that it's lived in wisdom. Towards whom? Towards outsiders. And when Paul speaks of speech, he says, let your speech always be gracious. As if He's envisioning something that has become habitual and ongoing practice. And so Paul, when he thinks of the Christian life, your Christian life, the vision that he has is that you live your life as a person who has trained and practiced and prepared so that you begin to regularly live a life of evangelism. How powerful. Isn't that amazing? And here's the thing. We read that and we go, well, wait a minute. If that is true, why does it seem that so few Christians actually practice evangelism with any kind of regularity, you know? Myself included. Why does it seem so awkward? Why does it seem so difficult? Why is it that so many Christians, probably even many of us, we so rarely talk to an unbeliever about Jesus? Isn't that interesting? It's as if there's this gap between what we know to be true, which is we've been given this great commission, evangelism matters, every Christian is an evangelist, but there's this space between what we know and what we actually practice, live in our lives. I've thought a lot about that. Why is that? What are the different issues? There's probably many, but I've, I've, I think I've discovered there are two or three that are common to many Christians. And what I want to do, I want to actually tell you a story before I give you my, these the things on this list. I want to tell you a story that I think illustrates this really well. It's the story, actually a true story, of a 26-year-old American missionary who was murdered last year. He was killed last year in November on a remote island off the coast of India where he attempted to share the gospel with the most isolated tribe in the world. Any of you remember this story? It was all over the news for like 24 hours, okay? This missionary, his name was John Allen Chow. I have a picture of him. Just just a regular American guy. He was 26 years old, all right? Missionary. He was murdered. The island that he went to is called North Sentinel Island, and this island is so remote that it actually is one of the very last places on the planet where there are, there's a people group who have been totally unreached by the modern world. 
So think of a tribe of people who have no technology, no medicine, none of the, none of the things that we have. They've been completely cut off, and actually they have, they have been violent towards anyone who tries to make contact with them. And I actually have a picture of, there have been very few pictures taken, but here's a picture of some of the North Sentinelese shooting arrows at a helicopter as it flies by. And here's what happened. This missionary felt that the Lord had called him to go to this unreached people group. He went to this island and he was killed. And this made headline news. And you know what happened? Twitter went crazy with this. All right. It was all over the Twitter feed. A lot of people were celebrating it, saying this is amazing, you know, his faith. But a lot of people, Christians included, really wrestled with this. There were some vicious things said about him. He was a colonizer and ignorant and, you know, it got really heated. This is, this is the state of our world. And so what I did is I actually went underneath and I tried to learn what I could learn about this young man. You know, the thing about this guy, he wasn't ignorant. He wasn't a jerk. He wasn't a loser. This guy was really smart. He loved Jesus. He believed what Jesus said, go to the ends of the earth and make disciples. And he felt like here we have an island where they've never even heard the name Jesus. And he felt, I need to go. And so he, he went to this island. He went, the first day that he went, he brought fish and he laid them out and the, 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 the villagers came with arrows and they were, it was very life and death. In fact, one of the children shot an arrow towards him and it went through his Bible and he took the arrow back out and gave it to, back to the child and then he swam back to the boat and he prayed that night and then he came back the next day and he was killed. Amazing. Why am I telling you this story? This captures often evangelism for us, okay? Think about this. Many of us, if we're being totally honest, when we think of evangelism, we think of it as this massive moment, okay? It's like this life or death, big one-time moment where it all rides on one conversation or one interaction as if, if I don't come away with an arrow through my Bible, it's not been like true evangelism or something. But the, here's the problem with that. Most people actually come to faith in Christ over the course of a lot of time, many interactions. It almost never happens in one big moment, all right? It's gradual and it's relational and it often involves community. We are primed in this church for evangelistic moments. But the other thing that's true about evangelism is that many of us, if we're being totally honest, we actually don't have that many deep friendships with unbelievers, right? The idea of really reaching out to an unbeliever, it's almost like reaching out to an unreached people group for some of us because we have so many great Christian friends and community, amazing. But in order to begin to practice evangelism, one of the things you may need to do is to begin thinking intentionally about friendship with unbelievers, right? But here's the, here's the real reason. This is the big one. I think this will, this will hit all of you. The biggest reason that we don't practice evangelism is fear. Fear, right? Isn't that it? There's fear. Do I know what to say? 
Or will I be rejected? You know, it's very unpopular in our culture. Will the Twitter feed go crazy? You know, so there's this fear that, that haunts us. This is a very unpopular thing to do. And so River West, how are we going to break through that? Here's how we're going to break through it. We're going to go back to Paul and we're going to notice some incredibly practical things that Paul shows us. Paul says, would you like to become a believer who regularly practices evangelism in your life? Boy, I hope you would. There are some simple ingredients to a life of regular evangelism. I'm going to put up on a screen here what I think are the three critical ingredients that Paul talks about. He talks about your praying, your walking, and your talking in the passage. You notice that? Those are the three. And what I did is I just wrapped a couple of other words around those to help you think about this. So Paul talks about mission-focused prayer, not just any kind of prayer, but mission-focused prayer. He talks about outsider-oriented conduct. I like this one. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Whoa. Man, I could preach a whole series on that phrase. And then finally, Paul talks about your speech. Let your speech be gracious. This idea of grace-empowered speech. And here's the thing. You look at those three. These are things you can begin to practice in your life. And I, I want you to. I want our whole church to lean into these three. So we'll take some time here. Um, this won't take long. We'll take some time to break these down. And along the way, I'll be encouraging you, thinking about how do I practice these in my life? How do I make this habitual? It begins with prayer. Not just any kind of prayer, mission-focused prayer. Think about this. When you pray for something, you focus your heart and your mind on the things that matter most. Isn't that true? And not only that, you acknowledge that the thing that you're asking for can only be accomplished by God. Isn't that true? That's prayer. Prayer is, I'm going to focus now, Lord, on the things that matter most. And not only that, I'm praying because I'm convinced that the thing that I'm asking for is something that only, only you can do. You see how Paul said it? He said, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer for what? Pray for us, verse 3, that God may open to us a door for the word. This is amazing. Paul's saying, don't just, don't just only pray for private personal desires and wishes. Fine, great. But what if you were to make a practice, continue steadfastly praying for what? That for evangelism, for the impact of the gospel. What an amazing thing to pray for. Paul says, this is what I'm asking you to do, church. Pray regularly for this. Make this a priority in your life. Brothers and sisters, can I ask you a question? How frequently do you pray for the spread of the gospel in our world? Is that on your daily prayer list? How frequently do you pray for the impact of our church? How often do you pray for our pastors? How often do you pray for our ministry partnerships in Rwanda? How frequently do you pray for Nopum? How frequently do you pray for your own relationships in your neighborhood at work? Praying, God, 
please open a door for your word. Amazing. Paul says, when I think of the Christian life, I think of a person who's praying like that, not just once every year, but as a regular part of their prayer life. They're seeking God. Amazing. We have these ways that you can pray here on Sunday. We have a fishbowl over here, and there, there are folks in our church who every Sunday, faithfully, they leave us a prayer request. Please pray for my son. Please pray for my daughter. People who come over here to the left, Sunday after Sunday, you know, you're invited to bring that same prayer request every Sunday. We will never get annoyed with you, I promise. Come faithfully and pray, all right? How about you? Is that on your prayer list? There were two specific items on Paul's prayer list. This is so interesting. Look back at Colossians 2. Two things that he wanted prayer for. Number one, he wanted, he wanted prayer that God would open a door for the word. He asked for that. And it's a fascinating metaphor, an open door. Think about it. Think about the difference between a closed door what does that feel like when you want to go somewhere, but you, when you get there, the door is closed. It's locked. You cannot get through. Versus you get there and there is an open door. And Paul says, this is the metaphor I want you to think of when you pray for the spread of the gospel. It was a word picture that he used regularly when he described his ministry. So, for example, I'll put a couple on the screen so you can see this. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells us that he decided to, to have an extended stay in Ephesus because in the, in the next verse, verse 9, a wide door for effective work had been opened for him. So God had opened a door. But here's the question. What if Paul had found a closed door for effective work in Ephesus? Would he have stayed? Would he have kept trying and, you know, preach louder or yell or try to become more winsome or effective? No, Paul would have said, there's a closed door here. And a closed door is a closed door. Sometimes there's a closed door and sometimes God opens a door. Amazing. Or here's another version in 2 Corinthians 2.12. Paul says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, a wide door was opened for me and the Lord. What if there had been a closed door in Troas? This is, so Paul is onto something. He's, he's saying, brothers and sisters, the reason I want you to pray that God would open a door is because when it comes to the spread of the gospel, when it comes to salvation, to the impact of the message of Christ on a human heart, there's only one person in the universe who can open that door. Amen? One person in the universe. Hi, baby. Good morning. And that person is the living God, the living God. And so Paul says, pray, pray for an open door. It doesn't matter how much you keep talking or how convincing you become. If God does not open a door, then there's a closed door. And so Paul says, this is a part of your regular prayer life. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes God does open a door. And sometimes he opens that door and you're not even expecting it to happen, right? And suddenly you're in a situation where you realize, oh my goodness, God has just opened a door for me. And here's the thing. When God opens the door, the believer now, now you know what you have to do? You have to walk through that door. 
with faith and obedience. The door's open. What do I do? I have to walk through this door and I can catch you off guard. So this last month, this is a story about my failure, all right, to walk through a door, okay? I'm going to tell a lot of stories today about how much of a loser I am so you'll feel better about yourselves as evangelists, okay? Here's what happened. It was one of those nights I had not slept all night. I tossed and turned. I woke up. I didn't wake up. I was up all night, and I finally got out of bed at 5 a.m., and I drove down to a local coffee shop, and I was sitting there half asleep. I had my cup of coffee. I had a Bible on my lap and a book on the spiritual disciplines, and I was sitting there feeling sorry for myself, drinking my coffee, and I noticed out of my peripheral vision that there was a guy sitting next to me, and he was looking over at the books on my lap. And you know what I did in that moment? I prayed, Lord, please don't let this guy talk to me <laughs> because I was so tired. Okay. I was like, oh, I'm the worst Christian. And you know what? He talked to me, of course. Not only did he talk to me, he goes, hey, hey, can I ask you a question? And I, I'm not, okay, this is a bad moment. I, I literally for about five seconds, I pretended I could not hear him. I was so bad. <laughs> And I was fine. I was like, huh, what? And he goes, can I ask you a question? I was like, sure. He goes, Are, you're a Christian, right? And I was like, yeah. And here's what he said. I couldn't believe it. He goes, will you please tell me why it is that you've become convinced that Christianity is true? And I was like, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. <laughs> oh, my heart was doing one thing, okay? And then I, I just started talking. And I'll be honest with you, it was not one of my better moments, but I tried. And then he asked so many, he asked questions about, you know, science and how do those work together? I mean, it's five in the morning, I'm sleepless. I literally drove away that day with my head down. I was like, oh, Lord. I prayed, will you cover over my weaknesses, right? My frailties. Sometimes you pray for an open door, and God opens it. And then you have to walk through with obedience and faith. And this is why the second thing that Paul asked for prayer for, did you see it there, the end of verse four? He said, will you pray for me that I will declare the mystery of Christ clearly? Isn't that amazing? Paul says, please pray, church. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your missionaries. Pray for yourself. Pray that God will open a door and then pray that your pastor, that your missionary, that you will have the wisdom to declare the mystery of Christ clearly. Amen. Isn't that good? You say, what is evangelism? What's the definition of evangelism? Paul's given it to us right there. Simple little phrase, right? Evangelism is, it's, in, in one sense, it's so simple. Do you know what it is? It's declaring the mystery of Christ. Proclaiming Christ. That's evangelism. Proclaiming Christ. The gospel is a message. And the only way you can communicate a message is through speaking it as clearly as you can. And the gospel is about Jesus. And so Paul says, please pray for me. I want to be clear. I want to be ready. I want to be compelling. God has to open the door, yes. But when he does, his servants who care, who are, who are, who are longing to live a life of evangelism, they're ready to preach and proclaim Jesus Christ, the mystery, the beauty, the glory.
Christ. Will you pray about that? I hope you will. That's the first ingredient. Here's the second ingredient. I love this. So we have mission-focused prayer. And then Paul says, your conduct matters. So I've called this outsider-oriented conduct, okay? And I chose that word conduct because Paul uses this figure of speech for walking. He says, walk in wisdom. The Hebrew people, that idiom, that, that was a way of describing your life, your everyday living, how you behave in this world, how you conduct yourself. And Paul said, brothers and sisters, here's the thing. Your behavior in this world is critical. It's critical when it comes to the spread of the gospel. Do you know why? Because outsiders are watching us. Did you know this? They're watching us. They're watching how we treat people. They're watching the way we live. That can feel unsettling, but we all know it's true. We know it's true. And so Paul says, walk in wisdom. Become consumed with how you live your life every day. And have in your purview, have those, those people in your world who are outsiders. Do, do I walk in wisdom towards them? Okay? So I had an experience where I did not walk in wisdom towards an outsider. Story number two about how messed up your pastor is. All right, here we go. Kathy and I, a year and a half ago, we moved into a new neighborhood. And I have this kind of philosophy about life that wherever I am, wherever I live, I'm not there by accident. And you should believe this too, because we believe in a sovereign God. Your neighbors, you are not their neighbor on accident. Your roommate, okay, your flatmate, that, that kid who sits next to you in math class, not an accident. God has placed that person there, and God has placed you there on purpose. Amen? Because he's sovereign, and he loves them, and he knows you have the light of Christ. And normally, I live with that conviction pretty faithfully. But uh, on one occasion, we have this little cat named Oliver who's an escape artist, and Oliver jumps out of our second-story window all the time, and we live near a forest where there are coyotes. And so cats survive for a very short period of time in my neighborhood. The coyotes are chubby. They look really cute because they're eating cats constantly, okay? So this cat, Oliver. He drives me crazy. He keeps escaping. It's like the first month we're there. Finally, one time he breaks out and I'm like, let him die. Honestly, let him die. And my girls are crying, no, dad. So I run outside for like the 10th time in a week. I don't have any shoes on. We're tearing around, you know, we're tearing around the yard and, and, I, and I see Oliver and I like yell something like, Oliver, you better pray that the coyotes catch you before I do. You know, I'm like losing my cool. I look like a crazy man. And I look up and there's my neighbor. Her name is Robin. And she has like one eye lip. She's like, the neighbors are crazy. And I, you know, I had, I was angry. I was yelling. It was not my better moment. All right. And I was like, oh, and you know what I did? I actually, it's so funny because God would not let me have peace with that. So like a couple of months later, I waited longer than I should have. I saw her pull into the driveway and I walked over and I was like, Robin, I owe you an apology. Because a couple of months ago, you 
kind of saw me behaving in a way that I try not to normally behave. <laughs> and she was like, what are you talking about? I mean, she didn't even remember it. She was like, I'm glad you're clearing your conscience, but I, I apologized. And so here's the thing. People are watching. People are watching, right? Paul says, walk in wisdom. What does he mean by that? What does it even mean to walk in wisdom? In Colossians, when Paul says walk in wisdom, here's what he's talking about. He, he says a lot of things about wisdom. So Paul will say, the first thing you need to know about wisdom is that God has hidden all of his wisdom in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, 3. In Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom. Whoa. And then Paul says, so you walk in Christ. Why would you walk in Christ? Because God's hidden all the treasures of wisdom in Christ. And then later Paul says, walk in wisdom. And the believer's going, oh yes, walking in wisdom means to walk in Christ, to be tapped into Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there is a wisdom that you have access to. Why? Because you are connected to Jesus Christ, the living word of God. And if you connect to him, if you stay tapped into him, if you walk in Christ, Paul says, you'll be able to walk in wisdom. And why would you do that? Well, look at the end of verse five. He says, walk in wisdom, making the best use of the time. You don't want to waste any of the precious time you have here. That phrase actually means to buy back the time, to redeem time. It's as if time is ticking away and you're trying to buy back, redeem, make the most of every moment you have in this life. You don't want to get to the end of your life and regret missed opportunities, right? I drove away from Starbucks that day going, oh, Lord, forgive me. I need your grace. Let me tell you something. When you get to the end of your life, there's one thing you will never regret. You will never regret at the end of your life spending time talking about Jesus with unbelievers. You won't regret it. You won't regret it. Paul says, walk in wisdom. So there it is. Mission-focused prayer, outsider-oriented conduct, and finally, and this will just take a minute, Paul talks about our speech. Grace-empowered speech. Did you see it there? He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. I love this. Friends, can I tell you something? This is so critical. Please hear me. Eventually, if you're ever going to become a Christian who regularly practices evangelism, you're going to have to get comfortable talking to people about Jesus. Which can be an uncomfortable thing to do in our world, right? But the reality is, if evangelism is going to become something that's habitual. You're going to have to get to a place where you're totally comfortable talking about Christ because the gospel is about Christ. No one comes to faith only because of the example of your conduct. Eventually, they have to hear the message of the gospel Proclaimed. It is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation, right? So important. So begin to practice. 
What does it look like to talk about Jesus? I think that's what Paul's talking about when he says gracious speech. Speech that's seasoned with salt. Jesus used that metaphor. Is speech where Christ is the content, right? Isn't that interesting? So I heard this story that captures this so perfectly. Um, It's a story about a young man who came to Christ right here in Portland at a a Palau event, a a Luis Palau event in downtown Portland. It's a true story. I'll try to get this story right because it's really significant. This young man, he, he was downtown at one of these big events, and he came to Christ. And the very next day, he went to work, and he was talking to his boss. And he said, I had this amazing experience. I heard the gospel, and I became a Christian. And here's what his boss said. He said, oh, my gosh, that is amazing. I am a Christian, and I have been praying for you every day. And this young man did not respond the way his boss thought he was going to. He got almost hurt and offended. And he was like, why did you never tell me you were a Christian? He goes, you are actually the reason that I never considered Christianity. Ouch, right? No, but this story is different than you think, all right? He was like, you're the reason I never considered Christianity. And his boss said, what? He said, I tried to live out before you as faithfully as I could the Christian life. And the young man said, precisely. What you did is you lived out a life that I admired, but you never told me about the source of power that allowed you to live that life. So I thought I could live that life without Jesus as well. Amazing. Evangelism is this, connecting for people in your life, your greatest joys, your greatest victories, the power of being forgiven, grace, new life. Don't just talk about those things in general or live them out. Tell people in your life the person who's brought all of those things to bear in your life. Amen? Tell people. Now now you're like, oh, I'm going to become a Jesus freak. No, you're not. You're not going to become a Jesus freak, all right? And think about it. How unapologetically people talk about the craziest stuff that's changed their life, right? But we can't talk about Jesus? Jesus has changed my life. And I think he's changed yours too. Talk about it. Tell people about it with speech that's gracious. Now, what Paul does is so great. Look at that last phrase. He says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I love that. Here's what Paul's doing. He's saying, your speech, when you think about the way you use words, he goes, I want you to apply those words personally to the people in your life that don't know Jesus yet. Pray for them. Spend time with them. The idea is that the gospel can be connected personally to each person based on where they are at. So you have a friend that you're spending time with and you're, and you're having lunch with them and you listen well and you ask lots of questions and you learn about their life. You might learn all kinds of things about this friend. You might learn that this person is not a Christian because they had a horrible experience in a church, which happens all the time, right? So what do you do? You begin to pray, God, give me gracious speech where I could actually address that particular concern. 
Or maybe you have a friend who's really wrestling with philosophical questions about Christianity, questions about science and faith and all these things. Then you pray, Lord, help me. And maybe you study or read a book or we, we have all these classes. We have a class called I'm Glad You Asked that you can sign up for next week. We have a class called Christianity Explored that you can take. You can bring an unbelieving friend to this class. You can train, you can pray, you can grow, you can learn. Why? Because Christians are people who have speech that's seasoned with salt, gracious. And we love our unbelieving neighbors. And we use our speech to tell them about how amazing Jesus Christ is. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? Here's how I'll close. I have this belief that this theme is something God really wants our church to focus on. And so I'm, the reason I'm preaching this sermon now before we launch back into Luke is that I'm, I'm actually calling you to make this practice a part of your focus, okay? The church is a community of people, all of whom are meant to be evangelists. And so would you please pray? And would you consider your life and consider your speech? And let's begin to practice this and let's see what our Heavenly Father does. I'm going to pray about that. Will you bow your heads with me? The worship team will come. Lord, how powerful and wise this passage that we read. So clearly you inspired Paul to write it. And not, not only is it profound, but it's practical. We can make a habit, Lord, of praying like this. We can put it on our prayer list. We can come for prayer on a Sunday. We can pray in our community group or our Bible study that she would open doors for the word. And Lord, we can make a practice of walking in wisdom. And we can make a practice of having gracious speech, but only as we follow you, Jesus. And so it's you that we cry out to this morning. God, would you fill us with new joy, with new conviction. Show us again the beauty of Jesus, the Jesus that we know, we pray that we might leave here today as evangelists in your name. I also want to pray, Lord, for guests and visitors who've come, any who are considering Christ or on a spiritual journey, Lord, continue, Father, to love them. If you're feeling faith growing in your heart, that is our Heavenly Father doing a work in your heart because he loves you. Just consider that today as we worship. Lord, we, we trust you now. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.